following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, July 10th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As I was uh, getting ready for this morning, um, I, I was studying and, and an old preacher story came to mind. And and what that means, that's just code for a story that preachers tell uh, that's been around for a long time that no one can remember who said it first. It's just an old preacher's story. And I thought of this old preacher's story as I was getting ready for this morning. And I also thought about it probably because I've got an upcoming wedding anniversary and the two kind of go together. And the story basically goes like this. This old preacher had a point that he wanted to make in his sermon. And so to try to get that point across, he told an illustration. That's a normal Thing that preachers will do. And the illustration goes something like this. He looked out at his congregation and he addressed the husbands, the men in the room, the husbands that were in the room. He said, husbands, at some point in your marriage, whether you've been married for a day or whether you've been married for a decade or more, at some point, your wife is going to come to you and she's going to ask you a question. She's going to say, do you love me? And you're going to hear the question and you're going to respond, of course, I love you. But she's going to follow that up with another question. Do you know what the question is? He said, she's going to follow that up with another question of her own. Why do you love me? And he said, husbands, when your wife asks you that question, be careful how you answer. Don't say, well, I love you because you're so beautiful. It might be well received in the moment. It might be appreciated in the moment, but if she doesn't ask you, it's going on in her mind. Well, what about as I age? Have you ever thought about aging? What happens when I don't look like this anymore? And he said, some of you are going to hear that question, why do you love me? And, and you're going to respond, I, I just love all the time we get to spend together and all the things we get to go do. You both, we both love the same adventures. We both love to get outside and go do all these things together. And I just love it. But in her mind, and if she doesn't say it out loud, she's going to respond, well, what happens if I get sick or hurt? And I'm not able to go do those things anymore. And I said, some of you are going to hear that question, why do you love me? And you're going to respond, you know, I just love your wit your humor, you're so quick, it's so funny, it's so sharp, and I just love it. And maybe she'll respond, well, what happens if I go through a season of depression? What happens if I just find myself in a time of melancholy and I can't quite get out? And some of you are going to hear the question he said, and and you're going to respond, and you're probably going to be sincere in your response, but you're also probably going to think it's the right answer, and you're going to respond, you know, I just, I love you because of your character, and your integrity, your morality, and the strength of your conviction, and the reality of it is she's just going to look at you, or at least think in her mind, well, what happens when I have a moral lapse? What happens if that integrity under the weight of life Becomes to, begins to erode. That our preacher told this story and he just kept going. And as he went over all these examples, he ended and he said, the trouble with every answer 
is that you're not loving her for her. You're loving her for what you get from her. And you're leaving her with all of your answers wondering, what happens when I can't deliver on that anymore? Will you still love me? To the point this old preacher was getting after in his sermon as he was telling this illustration was the fact that in every human heart, there is this need and desire to know that you're loved simply because you're loved. You're loved simply because you're loved. But the problem is that kind of love can't be found anywhere in the world. You have this need and this desire to know you're loved simply because you're loved, yet every person in the world who has the opportunity to love you that way can't love you that way. You know why? Because every person in the world who could, could love you that way is in themselves needy. Just like you. Which is why he said in the best of marriages and the best of friendships and the best of relationships professionally and all the environments we find ourselves in, in the best of them, that appreciation, that love, that connection is still always somewhat conditional because we're needy. You see, there's only one person, just one, one person who could ever love you the way that your heart truly desires to be loved. There's only one person who in themselves has no need at all, isn't needy in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Only one person who could ever say to you and your heart, I love you because I love you. And that person is your creator and your savior. And you see, knowing his love, knowing and receiving his love becomes the unshakable, unbreakable, undefeatable foundation on which you begin to build your life, your sense of identity. It's having received and then known and living in this love that changes everything. It's the most energizing, it's the most liberating, it's the, it's, it's the most catalytic reality that you and I could ever experience. It literally changes everything. It changed everything for a very odd ragtag group of people centuries ago in the city of Thessalonica. And it has and will continue to change a very ragtag group of people in Richmond, Virginia, Redemption Hill Church. And so this morning, as we continue to consider the Apostle Paul's letter to this church in Thessalonica, I just want us to listen to him this morning and consider how, how does God love like that? How can I know that I'm loved by him in this way. What does that have to do with this letter he wrote centuries ago anyway? So that's what we're gonna deal with this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the New Testament, the right-hand side of the Bible. The letter Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, it's 1 Thessalonians. If you wanna use the Bible in front of you, it's on page 986. 
And here's the thing, we're gonna, we're, we work our way, Pastor Raymond talked about this a few weeks ago, our custom here is to take a book of the Bible and work our way thought by thought, kind of verse by verse, section by section to understand what God's intention for his people is and what he inspired. And when you come to letters that Paul wrote, you have to read them like a human and realize a human wrote these things inspired by God to other people. And so you have to follow their train of thought. And the thing with Paul is he didn't believe in punctuation. He just wrote very, very long run-on sentences because he could never figure out where to stop his thought, right? No, he knew where. He just wanted to convey so much. He just keeps going and going, offering evidences and evidences of things he's trying to say. So when you're trying to teach what Paul is saying, it's very hard to figure out how to find a place to stop because Paul never stopped. And so what we're going to try to do is kind of follow his train of thought. And, and what we've seen in the first few verses carries into what we'll look at in the next couple of verses. So look down at your Bible at verse 1, and you kind of feel this train of thought. He begins this letter, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And we spent time just kind of unpacking that and understanding for those who would have heard it why this would have been so anchoring and reassuring to their hearts. Even in the beginning, being reminded they are loved and anchored by grace and in grace and that God alone is the source of this grace and is the source of the new identity they have as his people together, this church. And he goes on in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week, we, we just kind of slowed down here to consider that when the Apostle Paul thought about this church, and he thought about these people, gratitude to God shaped all of his thoughts about them. Gratitude to God was the lens through which he saw them. He reassured them of the evidences of God's grace at work in their lives that he could point to. Their faithfulness to Jesus in all of their work, the way they went about their daily lives in their vocations was different. They were faithful to Jesus in what they did even when it cost them. The good works they did, the sacrifices they made, the lives they lived, they were faithful to Jesus in all dimensions of it, and it was evident. Their faithfulness in their work was clear. The labors, the, the strenuous, exhausting sacrifices that they made out of love towards others in the church, outside of the church, believers, non-believers, Paul and his team, churches throughout the region, they exhausted themselves in sacrificial love towards others the way that they understood themselves having been loved by God, and it was evident. It was the work of God's grace in their hearts, Paul said, and it was clear as well as the steadfastness of their hope. The unshakableness of their hope because it was rooted in the person and work of Jesus. And Paul said, I'm grateful to God when I think about you. That's how I think about you. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful to God of the work that he's doing in you and I can see it. Your lives look different. The grace is evident. 
And as he continues on, his thought process isn't changing. What he's about to say is simply Paul digging deeper in the gratitude, digging deeper in what's overflowing in his heart and kind of overflowing to them for reasons why it's appropriate for him to be grateful to God for what he sees in their life. Like Paul could just say, I'm grateful to God because I can see this in your life and you, and you could go, well, I don't know, do you say it to everybody? Like, is it right for you to be grateful for that? I mean, and Paul's like, no, I'm gonna tell you why. Why it is right for me to be grateful to God for what I see in your life. Why I can be so certain there's a reason and the reason that Paul gives and then this the continued lack of punctuation and all the evidences of this reason that Paul's gonna give in the rest of the chapter. The reason that he gives, it, I want you to know, it, it's a supercharged reason. Right? The language that Paul is going to use is supercharged language. It, it is industrial strength, fully leaded gospel language. Look at verse four. Here's why. Here's why I know it's appropriate for me to be grateful to God for what I see going on in your life and can attribute it to his grace at work in you, changing you and changing the way that you live. For, because we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That is explosive language. And to understand why it's explosive, you've got to understand a little bit of context for those who would have heard it what it would have meant to them. If you were with us when we started this letter a few weeks ago, we spent a whole week kind of in the background of how God brought this church to be, how God gave birth to this church in Thessalonica. It's in Acts chapter 17, and, and the custom of, of the apostle Paul and his team was to always to go into a new city, to go into the synagogue, and because Paul was an esteemed teacher of the Old Testament, an esteemed rabbi, he would be given the opportunity to read from the Old Testament scrolls and teach. And it was his custom to go into the synagogue and open up the scroll and teach, but while he taught, Acts 17, go back and look at it, Luke says he would explain, and he would reason, and he would seek to persuade everyone who was listening why Jesus was the Messiah and why he must die and be raised to new life. He would take the Old Testament scriptures they were familiar with and the realities of the person and work of Jesus, and he would persuade them, put them on top of each other so that they could see in all that they were familiar with, God was pointing them and preparing them for Jesus. That's what Paul did, and he would proclaim Jesus, declare him as the Messiah, that the long-awaited promised king of God has come and his kingdom has been established and he calls all people under the message of his victory to repent and believe in him. This is what Paul would do. That was his custom. And you've got to understand that in that synagogue when Paul would arrive there, and we'll just look at Thessalonica, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17 that there were not only Jewish believers, or not at this time, there were not only Jewish men and women in the synagogue, but there were also what he called devout Greeks, many of them leading women in the city. So they were Gentiles. So there were Jewish men and women in the synagogue, and then there were these Gentiles in the synagogue, which is a curious thing. Because in the Jewish world, it was very clear that Gentiles were unclean. 
There were hundreds upon hundreds of laws that had been established over the centuries by different rabbis outlining how a devout man or woman of the Jewish faith was to interact with Gentiles in their world and in their life. Laws like if you were served a, a piece of food on a plate that had been prepared by or previously used to serve a Gentile, it had to be destroyed and you couldn't eat it. I mean, law after law after law, helping to distinguish for them in their minds and their lives, clean and unclean. And for the Gentile in that day, the Jewish people in their city that would gather in that synagogue, they were an unending source of laughter anyway. Because to a Gentile that day, they would look at a a Jewish man or woman and be like, that's the one that believes in the invisible God who's got all these laws about how they have to live and and what they can eat and and what they can wear. And have you heard what they do to their men? They circumcise their men? They were an unending source of laughter for the Gentile. But here in this synagogue, you've got not only Jewish men and women, but you've got devout Greeks. You see, there were some Gentiles who had become interested in the God of the Jewish people. And so they would come to the synagogue to listen and to learn. And sometimes in the New Testament, they're they're called God-fearers. They may not be full believers in Israel's God, but they're there, they're listening. There may be certain habits or practices of the Jewish people that they begin to follow, but it wouldn't have been uncommon in their own life as a Greek or a Roman or a Gentile to continue to live the way everyone else around them lived. In our day and age, you most commonly call people like this that are gathered in a church seekers. Curious, investigating, learning, considering, but maybe not fully in. And sometimes in the New Testament, you hear about this group of God-fearers, and they're called proselytes. Those are Gentiles who, in their mind, have gone all the way in. They have believed with their whole heart in the God of the Jewish people. They even begin to live according to his rules, his laws, and his customs, many of which, according to the rules of the rabbis, if you're a man, you get circumcised. But here's the thing. All gathered in that synagogue at that time, all hearing the same scriptures, hearing the same God, no one in that synagogue was confused as to who God's people were. You see, Jewishness was determined not by how many of the laws you followed, how many of the customs you kept, even if you were circumcised as a Gentile, Jewishness was determined by your mom and your dad. It was determined by your birth. And so in that synagogue, you had these curious Gentile seekers, you had these leading women who were there gathered, learning, some maybe even beginning to live according to the law of God, and these Jewish men and women who all together were learning, were worshiping, were listening, yet in the room, not the same. Didn't understand themselves to be the same. And that's really important. But the best example that I can give, and it's very trite, but whenever you try to give an example about this kind of stuff, it's always trite. But one time we were flying into Central Asia, we left Dubai, and we took an Emirates flight. Have you ever seen commercials for Emirates Airlines? There's always like three celebrities standing by a bar waiting for their turn in the uh, you know, custom private like massage areas upstairs. They go back to their seat, and it's like 200 square feet of personal space for everybody. It's like the most amazing thing you've ever seen. That was not our flight. 
Like we were lucky if it was seven rows across in the very back. But they make sure when you get off that plane, you walk through that other section. And you see what everyone else was had. But here's the thing. We were all on the same plane. We were all going to the same place. We were all getting off in the exact same airport, but yet on that plane, we were not all the same. And those curtains and those dividers made it very clear that we were not all the same. That's what it would have been like for those that were gathered in that synagogue in Thessalonica. So Paul comes in, as is his custom, he's given the pulpit, and he takes an Old Testament scroll, one they would be familiar with because that's what they did when they gathered. Imagine him taking the scroll of Deuteronomy and opening it up. Moses' great sermon to God's people before they go into the promised land of God's continued steadfast faithfulness towards them throughout history, his promised faithfulness towards them going into the land, and he opens it up to read. Now, if you've got your Bibles, why don't you just flip over to the Old Testament. Let's just do this real quick. You can give, let you feel it. Deuteronomy chapter 7, right? Let's go there. That's a good spot. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 152. So Paul would open up a, a text like this, and he would read, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And the Jewish men and women in the room gathered in the synagogue to hear the reading of the scriptures would hear, God chose Israel. We're his treasured possession. He loves us because he loves us. There was nothing in any of us that merited or warranted God's affection He loves us because he loves us. And then the God-fearers and the proselytes and the Gentiles in the room would hear the love of God and go, "Mm, but we're not Israelites. We're in the room, but not in the room. We're in the same place and we're worshiping the same God, but does that extend to us? And what Paul would do is he would say, well, let's just keep reading, right? And so you keep reading. Verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. But yet, verse 10, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. What does hatred look like? Look at verse 11. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today, lest you disobey and I destroy you. I love you because I love you. I'm holy, and I can't tolerate your sin. And everyone sitting in the room, Jew or Gentile, knows exactly what's going on in their heart. 
And it sounds just like that story that preacher told that I was telling you about in the very beginning. It sounds a bit like an I love you because, doesn't it? It sounds a bit conditional. And this is where the Apostle Paul and the glory of the gospel begins to shine. Paul would take a text like this in the hearing of the people and say, let me just unlock this thing for you. And he would begin to explain and reason and persuade and prove from that text that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah of God. He would do it by declaring that it was necessary for Jesus, the promised Messiah, to die a sacrificial death in the place of God's people. You realize Paul would say that it was on the cross, the promised Messiah of God, Jesus, the very Son of God, was not only abandoned by all of his friends, but he was forsaken by his father. Physically, he was beaten, flogged, nailed to a tree, side pierced by a spear. Physically, he was destroyed. Emotionally, abandoned. And God placed on him the iniquity, the sin, the guiltiness of us all. Spiritually, he took our sin upon himself. Maybe Paul would jump to the prophet and say, you realize God already told us it's not by the blood of bulls and goats and all these sacrifices that God is pleased. He doesn't delight in any of those things. Those things have never been able to clear the conscience and clean the conscience. They can't save you. You see, Paul would say, Jesus is the only one in all of history who ever perfectly fulfilled verse 11 of Deuteronomy 7. He is the only person in all of history who kept all of God's commands, all of God's decrees perfectly and with great joy. He is the only person to ever truly deserve or warrant the blessings of God for obedience to his commands. Yet it was this Jesus who then willingly went to the cross and took upon himself the curse for your disobedience, the curse for my disobedience. Maybe he asked for the scroll of Isaiah to be brought to him and And he would read for them what the prophet had already said. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Jew, Gentile, all of us have gone astray. We've all turned, every one of us, to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. He is the only one to truly ever fulfill verse 11 of Deuteronomy 7, yet he was destroyed. He took the just judgment and wrath of God upon himself that we deserve for our disobedience. He took what God promised for covenant unfaithfulness upon himself so that all who see him and receive him and believe upon him now know what it is to be loved by God simply because I love you. 
Because he, the very son of God, met the conditions of that love on our behalf. Now you can begin to know what it is to be loved simply because you are loved. He fulfilled it in your place. And he loves you because he loves you. Not because you were born to a particular family. Not because you're smarter or better or prettier or stronger or holier or whatever you might think it is. He loves you because he loves you because of Jesus. And now in that room, Jew or Gentile, those who see Jesus receive this love by faith. Paul would go on to teach that God has made one new man. And in Jesus and in this love, there really is no distinction anymore, Jew or Gentile. His people in his son are the righteous ones. And in that synagogue, over that period of time that Paul was in Thessalonica doing something similar to that right there, we're told in Acts 17 that many were persuaded. Not a few devout Greeks and many of the leading women, Jew and Gentile, saw and believed and received the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus. So what does that have to do with the letter that he then writes? Well, listen to him. That's why you have to kind of follow the train of thought. And Paul says, I can be confident that it's right for me to be grateful to God for his work in you because, verse four, four, that's what, that's what four means, because, because we know, brothers, I mean, that's massive right there. We'll come back to that later in the, in the letter. I mean, he's writing to Jews and Gentiles who have now seen and received this love in Jesus, and he calls them brothers. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Same words from Deuteronomy chapter 7. That is supercharged language. Paul is just reminding them of God's choosing grace towards them, reminding them that the story of his promise towards his people now because of his grace to them in Jesus includes them. Israel's story and God's promise of redemption is now their story. He set his love and his affection upon you in his son before all eternity passed and he purposed to love you. I know that I can be grateful and it's right for me to be grateful for what I see going on in your life and I can attribute it to God's work in you, changing you, changing your heart, changing your life because I know he set his love on you through his son. None of you in the room are second class. All are God's children adopted by grace in Jesus. And the reason for the evidence of his grace the reason behind all the things that Paul can point to is not why God loves them. Those things are simply evidences that God has loved them and continues to love them in his son. He loved them before all of eternity in his son. It's an unbelievable reality. Imagine sitting there all of us in this room, I don't know everybody, but all of us in this room most likely would have been sitting in that synagogue 
on the outside of the story. Curious, maybe even devout, maybe even seeing something, but very clear, we were born to a different family. Sitting there, learning. And Paul just reminded this church, undergoing tremendous struggle and pressure and persecution because their lives have changed and they're following Jesus, that all of you, all of you, have been loved by God in his son before eternity passed. He purposed, before you did anything or could ever do anything, he purposed to love you in his son. This is why it's right for me to be grateful to God for what I see him doing in your life. This is why I can be confident that what I see in your life is the result of God's grace because I can be confident that he's loved you and he set his affection on you. How else could he tell? Like, what else does he have? Well, this is where Paul, I mean, he doesn't just put a period. He just, he just keeps spilling things out. I, if he didn't write it, whoever was writing while he was dictating, how do you be like, Paul, we got to stop for a second. But, I mean, listen to what he, he says. I, I, I know, brothers, loved by God that he's chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word. We'll just stop right here. We'll look at this verse here real quick. How else do I know? What other reason do I have to be confident in my gratitude to God for what I see in your life? Well, think back to when I came. The gospel came to you in word. This is very important to understand. The gospel, the the message of the good news of Jesus, it is more than just words. It demands more than words, but not less. It's very important. A little bit of a sidebar. But the gospel has specific content that is worthy of clear words, clear articulation. To Paul, these words were so important that he actually asked a church, a church in Ephesus, Ephesians 6.19, he asked them to pray that words would be given to me in the opening of my mouth and declaring of Jesus. You know, it's great for T-shirts, it's, it's great for bumper stickers and all those kinds of things, but Francis of Assisi was actually wrong. When he said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words, he was actually incomplete. The gospel demands more than words, but it's not less than words. A perfect life without gospel words isn't enough. It's the message of the gospel. It's the declaration of the person and work of Jesus. It's the declaration of what God has accomplished through his son that is powerful for the tearing down of strongholds and false ideas in our minds and heart. It's the words. It's the words. You realize that this is why the devil is fully content for the American church to just try to live a good Christian life but stay silent about Jesus. He's perfectly happy for us to do that, right? I mean, go back and read the stories of the early church in the book of Acts. In in Acts chapter four, the religious leaders call the followers of Jesus to the carpet. They begin to threaten them and they charge them in front of the people. Listen to it, Acts chapter four, verse 18. Do not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Look, just go back to doing what you were doing. Live your life. Suffer whatever consequences we think God is going to bring to you for this crazy idea you have, but stop talking about Jesus. 
Stop telling people about Jesus. Go back, suffer whatever, shut up about Jesus. Can you imagine how that must have felt? They were frightened. These are the people that ruled your life and they're threatening you for talking about Jesus. They're spamming your Facebook account. They're sending emails to your bosses and your friends. They're talking about you being a traitor, treasonous. They're threatening to hurt you. Well, keep reading the story. Those followers all gather back together to pray. And do you know what they ask God? Acts 4.29. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word about Jesus with all boldness. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but it came in word. There's an old saying, again, it falls into the preacher's stories. I don't know who said it, but I remember writing it down as a young believer. He said, Billy Graham may be a better preacher than you, but his gospel is not more powerful than yours. It's the good news about the person and work of Jesus, and it gets communicated with words. And Paul says, I can have this confidence of what's going on in your life that I can be grateful to God because I know he's chosen you because our gospel came to you. You heard about Jesus. We persuaded you about Jesus. We explained Jesus to you. We taught you about Jesus. And it came to you, but not only in word. He also says it came in power. You know, later in another letter that Paul will write, in fact, I probably haven't said this at all, but most scholars believe that this letter that Paul wrote to this church is the very first writing we have in the New Testament. It predates any of the other letters or the writing of the gospel accounts. This is probably the oldest and the earliest of all the letters in the New Testament. Later on, Paul will write to the church in Rome, and he will tell that church that this gospel, this message of this event, of this love found in the person and work of Jesus, this gospel is itself the power of God to salvation. He didn't say it brings power. He didn't say it leads to power. He says it is power. It has a force to it. It has a life to it. Paul said our gospel came to you and it came to you with its power. It took hold of you. You know, there's this, there's this season in life where it was true for me, and I'm sure it's true for many of you, where you kind of felt like some of those devout Greeks. You were interested in what was going on. You, you came and you heard, and, and you began to put to examination all these things about God and things about Jesus that you were being taught. What was true, what isn't. You were investigating the gospel. And Paul says there comes a point when the power of the gospel, and you begin to realize it, you're no longer investigating the claims of the gospel. You realize it's investigating you. It's taken a hold of you. It's grabbed you. It's a power. And you can know the gospel has become power, that its power is taking hold of you when you shift from investigating its truthfulness to realizing it's examining you. And Paul says, this gospel came to you as we taught and we explained and we proved and the words and the declaration of God's promise to us in Jesus came to you and its power took hold of your heart. It moved from words 
to a power that gripped you. It came to you in power and, Paul said, the Holy Spirit. He's not going to leave the Holy Spirit out. It's because it's this word, God's words, that are the very sword of God's Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that mediates the power of the gospel in the words of God to the heart. Nobody has explained this better to me than, than Ray Ortland when he wrote a book about the Holy Spirit. Ray Ortland said this. He said, just as our bodies are multisensory, right? You see, you hear, you smell, you taste, you touch. Just as our bodies are multisensory, so are our souls. In the spirit-given miracle of regeneration, of a new heart and a new life, our spiritual senses come alive again to God. Dead in sin, made alive and resensitized in God, the ear of the soul opens up. And just as Jesus said, my sheep can now hear my voice. Paul would later ask, how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? Well, if you state that positively, he said, they do believe in him whom they hear in the preaching of the gospel. Our ears are opened. And the eyes of our hearts are enlightened as Christ shines upon us. We receive the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the spiritually visible face of Jesus. The smelling salts of the gospel, they arouse in us an awareness of a fragrance from life to life. Jesus is felt and experienced in our heart to be a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We begin to taste the heavenly gift and the goodness of the Lord, and our hearts long for the pure milk of his word. He said the Holy Spirit works with the gospel to resensitize our hearts to the things of God. Jesus crucified becomes more real and more wonderful than the tangible things of all the world. He simply is better. And Paul says this confidence is there and it's right for me to say this to you and to be grateful for, to God for you because I, I see, don't you remember? Our gospel came to you and you heard it. Its power took hold of your heart and the Holy Spirit began to resensitize your soul. And that brought with it, Paul said, a full conviction. There was no talking them into it. God, the Holy Spirit, resensitized their hearts. It's taking them back to being truly human. The gospel power grabbed them. Right? They, they shifted from investigating these words and, and doing that cost-benefit analysis on the gospel Right, if I truly believe this and begin to, to live this way, well, this friend will probably say this, man, I, what would happen if I lived this way in front of this boss? I wonder if I'd keep my job. Well, what about my family? Oh, you know, the cost-benefit analysis of taking these words and trying to figure it out. Paul said we went way past that cost-benefit analysis. This gospel came to you and the Holy Spirit awakened your soul and the senses of your soul and the power of the gospel gripped you, and you saw Jesus. And your heart knew he was better. And you received him with full conviction. As one theologian said, God makes the truth of Christ so clear and distinct 
that in a moment it takes the rightful place in your mind in that position of authority by which every other idea is judged. The gospel becomes the sunlight in which you begin to see everything else. It's not only what you see, but what you see it with. It came with full conviction. You saw Jesus being destroyed, Deuteronomy 7, in your place. And do you know what you realized? You realized, one, the law of God really does matter. It's that important to God that he put our disobedience on his son. So I see Jesus and I realize I can't disregard the commands of God and the laws of God. God takes them seriously and so do I, but at the same time I see Jesus being destroyed in my place that I might know what it is to be loved by God in him. And you know what I want? I want my life to reflect his. He who fulfilled Deuteronomy 7:11, the only one to be obedient in that way. I want to look like him. I want to live like him. But you know what? When I see Jesus keeping that law and being destroyed in my place and it comes with full conviction, I realize that in the next 10 seconds when I actually fail, because it's going to be in like 10 seconds, even while I'm talking to you, I realize he loves me because he loves me. Not because of how well I could do it, how well I did do it, where I came from, or how smart I am, or, or how hard I could work to do it differently. No. He loves me because he loves me because of Jesus. And there's grace. I'm not loved because of my success. I'm not forgotten and discarded because of my failure. I know, brothers, loved by God that he's chosen you. Because the gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And imagine how it would be received. We can't look at the rest of it this morning, but imagine how that would be received. Imagine how easy discouragement would be for that church. Everyone around them rejecting them because they're following Jesus. Pressured on every side to compromise somehow, right? And then they hear this letter. We haven't even gotten through the fifth verse. They hear this letter being read, reminding them of God's eternal choosing initiative grace towards them in Jesus, Jew and Gentile, and that he loves them in his son because he loves them. Imagine how that would be received and how it would be heard. I imagine along with comfort and assurance, which is what that truth is meant to bring into our heart, it was received with a deep measure of humility. I mean, what else does truly believe in that you've been chosen and saved by grace supposed to produce in a heart? If you truly believe that God looked upon you and loved you and set his affection upon you in his son who died in your place for your sins, not because of anything in you, not because there was a shred in you that in any way deserved it or merited it, but because he chose to love you that way. If you really believe that, what can it produce in you but humility? There's no space for arrogance. There, there's no space for elitism. 
God's choosing grace, his radical grace, it literally undercuts the tendency in every one of our hearts to to walk around and strut around as though we're somehow better than everybody else. That we somehow figured it out and no one else has. That somehow we're, we're some kind of gift to God and other people should see us as gifts to themselves. Friends, God didn't love you because you were greater or because you were smarter or because you were better. He didn't love you because in any way, shape, form, or fashion, you were somehow more special. He loved you in Jesus because he loved you. And I will tell you, there there is nothing that this world needs more than a faith that somehow erodes and undercuts the tendency and the ability of Christians to feel superior and better than people. None of us is better than anyone else. Jesus is better than all of us. That's the point of the story. Brothers, loved by God, we know that he has set his affection upon you and chosen you, and that declares you're not better than anyone else, but Jesus is better than all of you. This, my friends, is the story and the impact of the staggering love of God on a very strange group of people centuries ago. But it's the exact same story of the staggering love of God on this very strange group of people at Redemption Hill. We'll end it this way. J.I. Packer, he said that it's staggering that God should love sinners, yet it's true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely and one would have thought unlovable. There was nothing whatever in the object of his love to call it forth. Nothing in any of us could attract or prompt this love of God. And here's the thing. You listen to me. You hear that. And if you just think about it for a second, you get it. You know what's inside of you. You know what thoughts have been running through your mind even while you were sitting here. You know the morally unattractive parts of you. And if we're honest, we're we're left sometimes with that reality and hearing this going, how can I be certain of this love? I have to think when Paul thought of this church and wrote this letter, he was considering that they were thinking the same thing, which is why the language is so supercharged. Brothers, sisters, loved by God and chosen. How do you know? You don't look inside yourself to find the reason for God to love you. You don't look inside yourself to try to convince yourself that God loves you. The reason for his love doesn't exist inside of you. The reasons go back before all of eternity. The roots go back deeper into his love and initiative to save in Jesus Those like you and I who are truly unworthy of it. It's staggering, Packer said, because this love involved the death of his own son. Not for anything that he did or deserved, but in our place as a sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing sacrifice for us. This love is staggering because after all of that, you can't earn it, you can't buy it. You only just receive it. Friends, if you're here this morning and you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, 
you sit there and, and walk out of here and in here week after week, uncertain of God's affection towards you. I, I can do nothing else than continue to point you to Jesus. Have you considered Jesus? This love is not something that you're going to be able to go out and earn. This affection is not something that somehow you can go and merit. It's staggering because all you have to do is receive it. You just have to say to him, I believe. You've said that this is your love. You've said that this is the extent and the magnitude of your mercy. I'm saying, I need it. I'm saying, I believe you. All you have to say to him is say, I believe you. Please take the burden of this sin off of my heart. All the griefs, all the sorrows, all the sin, all the shame, all of it, take it. I need you. You've said this is your love. I believe you. Just say it to him. There's no special moment, no special place. You just have to tell him. I wonder if there are any takers in here this morning. If you're here as we get ready to close and you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to understand that God is not simply tolerating you. I think we hear the nature of his love and if we're honest with our hearts, we think that God's just tolerating us because we know what's going on in us. He's not tolerating you. You haven't obligated God to do something towards you that he didn't want to do. You need to be amazed by this grace. You have been loved by him from eternity past. Not because of any goodness that you've done or he foresaw in you, but because he loves you. And with that and all that goes with it, he just intends for you to enjoy that grace and live staggered daily by his love. We know, brothers, Paul said, loved by God, that he has chosen you. My prayer for us is that that reality would become, as the 39 articles of the church that have been saying together for centuries say, that will become full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. He loves you because he loves you. Let me pray for us this morning and we get ready to respond. Father, the truth of your love is so grand. It's, it's why we never run out of ways, opportunities to enjoy it and speak about it. It's so grand, but it takes the miraculous work of your Holy Spirit to resensitize our soul, to regenerate our soul, to, to make those senses alive to you, to, to hear the goodness, to see the beauty, to taste the glory, to be comforted by the affection. It, it takes your Holy Spirit to do that miracle in our hearts. And so you know exactly what needs to be dealt with in every heart in here for those senses to be revived. And so we ask that for Jesus' glory and for our deepest joy, your Holy Spirit would do that work in our hearts this morning. We're confident, Lord, these are, this is the miracle that you delight to deliver. We ask that you would do that in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. 
For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.